chapter 20. As Martin said, we've been working our way through the book of Acts. Um, I, I looked at my notes the other day and realized we started this in 2014. And uh, we'll finish it in January, Lord willing. Um, we are in Acts chapter 20. This is a, a, a section in the middle of what, we, what many people would know as Paul's third missionary journey. The Apostle Paul is going around all these different places in Europe, declaring the gospel, planting churches, visiting churches again, strengthening and encouraging them, appointing leaders so that these churches can grow and become sending churches themselves. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 20 tonight in verses uh, 1 to 12. And uh, let's read that together. This is what God's word says. When the uproar had ended, that's the uproar in Ephesus where there's been a riot, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. Because the Jews made a plot against him, just as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus, from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread and five days later joined the others at Troas where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people. And because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Amen. This is God's word. Well, when it comes to the Christian life, uh, discouragement is both common and costly. It's common in the sense that everyone is prone to discouragement. And it's costly in the sense that it saps energy, it resolve weakens, uh, we lose our joy, it takes the wind out of our sails, it takes the spring out of our steps, and it affects everything from marriages, relationships, friendships, ministry, churches. Now, discouragement is something that is really hard to fend off. It seems to come at us from all sorts of angles. Uh, when I was younger, I used to uh, do taekwondo. And uh, one of the training scenarios that they would often set up for you would be a multi-angle assault. So what they would do is they, were, they would situate you in the middle of this mat and uh, they would assign three different people to attack you. Uh, generally, this is the point where you prayed that it was the, the smaller people 
that would come and attack you, but yeah, based on the instructor, instructor's uh, wit and sense of humor, they decided to appoint the big dudes. Okay? So what you do is they would situate you in the middle of the mat, and you had to take up your position, and you would have a guy who would attack you from the front, you would have a, a guy who was assigned on one, 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 on one side or the other, and someone coming at you from behind you. It was a multi-angle assault. And, and what was their purpose? Yeah, to crush you. To take you down, overwhelm you, and crush you. In a nice sporty sense, of course. Now, what I, I say that to, to, to explain that actually I think discouragement assaults us in much the same way. It comes at us really from three main angles as far as I can see it. The first one comes from the front, or I suppose you could say comes from within. Aren't we discouraged by our own disappointments? By falling short even of the standard that we set for ourselves. We fall into some of the same sins and we're frustrated by that, discouraged by it. We lay out plans, but those plans falter. We have great ambitions and dreams, but those dreams die. Then discouragement doesn't just come from within. It comes because of other people. Because human beings are viciously critical of each other in this fallen world. Whenever you hear reports or even feedback on people, on ideas, decisions, whatever, the number of times it's negatively weighted is it was notable. Not only does discouragement come from within or it comes from others, we can be discouraged by circumstances as well. Trials, hardships are tough. Sometimes we just get over one hurdle and we're faced with another. And this kind of discouragement overwhelms us and crushes us and it's tough to fight off because of its multi-angle assault. Now, we have to be aware of this, I think, as a church family because nothing, because of the costliness of discouragement, nothing can be allowed to distract us from glorifying God by making disciples of all nations, not even discouragement. Because it's all too easy, even as a church family, to be collectively discouraged, perhaps when something that we are aiming for, in terms of a plan, falls short. Or maybe discouragement comes when we know of a member who is tempted by the world and deserts the faith. Or when we're discouraged when forgiveness is not extended within the body of people who have received amazing forgiveness from Christ and just grudges are maintained. So how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this discouragement? Well, God has not left us wondering what to do. Encouragement is certainly the antidote, and we all play our part in encouraging one another. We'll get to that a little bit later. But what we find in this particular text is Paul the encourager, Paul the leader, Paul the pastor. We've seen so much in our studies in the book of Acts of, of Paul the, the church planter, Paul the missionary. But in Acts chapter 20 in particular, both tonight and next week and in if we, if we walk a little bit more slowly through Acts 20, perhaps, we're going to see Paul the pastor, Paul and his care, Paul and the place that encouragement takes in the life of a local church. Paul in Acts 20 is working his socks off to encourage churches. And even in this text, particularly tonight, shows us that Christian leaders, God calls Christian leaders to be serious encouragers of the church. So if you're taking notes, there are going to be two points tonight. Verses 1 to 6, encouragement, the necessary trait of Christian leadership. 
And the second point in verses 7 to 12, teaching the necessary means of giving encouragement. So number one, encouragement, this necessary trait of Christian leadership. What does the text show us? Well, it tells us that Paul is a model of encouragement. He's a non-stop encourager of the churches. Look with me at verse 1 and verse 2 and notice the common theme. When the uproar, that is in Ephesus, had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. So very simply, Paul, before he leaves the church in Ephesus to go on a wee tour, he encourages them. Then in verse 2 we read that Paul travelled through that area of Macedonia where he's revisiting some of the churches that he's already planted, like in Berea, Thessalonica. And what do we find Paul doing? Sightseeing. No. No. Speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. So wherever he goes, when he's leaving people behind, he's encouraging them. When he's visiting people, he's encouraging them. Paul is a non-stop encourager. But what exactly does it mean when, Paul, when it says that Paul spoke many words of encouragement to them? Well, the, the word in the original language is parakaleo. Para, meaning to come alongside, and kaleo, meaning to call out with, with exhortation. Uh, to call strongly for strength. And that's really what Paul is doing. Paul is coming alongside these believers in all these cities, and he's calling them coming alongside them and calling them to strength, to fight courageously against the multi-angle assault that discouragement, whether it's from within, whether it's from people in the world, or whether it's from specific circumstances, he's helping us know how to fight it. Now, that's what this encouragement is in this text. Don't think that Paul's like some kind of uh, personal trainer. He's like, hey, way to go. You're doing really super. Oh, you were very good on that last last trip. That was great. You're well done. You know, he's not a pat on the back kind of encourager. No, he's coming alongside to strengthen them and encourage them to help them fight courageously against discouragement. Now, clearly, Paul places a really high value on this aspect of Christian leadership. He believes it makes a huge difference to the health, the vitality, the perseverance of Christians in local churches as a whole. So he makes a point of visiting churches in person to encourage them. If he couldn't go and visit them, he would send one of his apprentices. He'll send Timothy or Titus ahead. We saw it in this text. He sent a few of them ahead to Troas before he even got there. And he also made a point of encouraging um, churches by post during this time. It's hard. You don't see it in this text. But if you have an understanding of how the New Testament fits together, you'll understand that you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four narrative accounts, true accounts of the life of Jesus. Then you've got the book of Acts, which is telling you about how the early church, early church, how the early church grew and what Jesus was doing from heaven through his disciples. They're planting churches and growing churches and seeing great growth in the gospel in all parts of the world. But what we see is that Paul, even in these times, this little layover, say, for three months in Greece, we know that this is the time that he wrote the book of Romans. We call it a book. It was essentially a letter. It was essentially a letter which said to these guys, I'm going to come and visit you, but I want you to know about this gospel that God has made me a servant of. 
and how true it is. A gospel which says that even as you two factions in the church argue, you Jews and you non-Jews are arguing about who's great and who's not, Paul would say, actually all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We are, no one can self-justify before God's, but a righteousness has been revealed that is from God from first to last. A righteousness that is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A righteousness that when we believe in Jesus brings us faith, it brings us peace, it brings us joy, it brings us strength in this fight against sin and whatever you think, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found in this faith in Christ Jesus. Therefore, this is how you ought to live. With the renewal of your mind and the offering of your bodies as living sacrifices. Love one another, he says. Serve one another in love, he says. Don't forget the poor, he says. See what, it's encouragement, it's very different from the way to go kind of encouragement. He's encouraging them wherever he goes and whatever he does. And it's an incredible thing to see. He wants people everywhere, believers everywhere, to know that God is at work. Using them, changing them so that they shouldn't lose heart. During this time as well, even from this first stopover in Troas that he writes to the Corinthian church. A time when he writes to them to say, look, my grace is sufficient for you even in weakness. And my heart's on my sleeve. I love you. I'm serving you. I love you. I've laid down all these, I've faced all these trials and difficulties out of love for you to make sure that you not only hear the gospel of God, but grow in your understanding of it so that you can live for Jesus. That's the kind of encouragement that Paul's talking about here. Now, how does this apply to us today? Well, encouraging leaders, it goes with uh, encouraging believers, I should say, is a vital part of Christian leadership today. Elders, pastors, even leaders of ministries in this church, we need to understand that people under our care are easily discouraged. Discouragement can be seriously costly for us as a church. It can seriously hamstrung our growth in Christ-likeness. It can hamstrung, ham, hamstring our growth as a church, our ministry as a family together. And our privilege and responsibility as leaders then is to come alongside members and encourage them with much words like Paul does. We would do, would do well really to employ Paul's methods to encourage people in person, make the most of occasions that we meet with people and organize to meet with people, plan to meet with people and make encouragement a real priority. Let's not be negatively minded as the world is, but look for evidences of God's grace in each other's lives. And siphon those things out and praise God for them. We can encourage people in lots of ways, maybe not by post. Well, maybe by post. I'm condescending the letter writers. Forgive me. I was thinking of email. Um, We can send emails, letters, cards, all sorts of things even good books. Now, in our capacity as as leaders, we meet people who are discouraged for all sorts of reasons. Discouraged by their own disappointments and failures. Well, that's when we come alongside, encourage them to look to Jesus and commend them to place their trust in the gospel that both cleanses from past sin 
and promises future hope. When people are discouraged by the things that people say about them, we ought to come alongside and encourage them to rest above all in our great God and Savior and that their identity is tied up in him. It's what he thinks of them that is vital. They are dis- when people are discouraged by circumstances that frustrate them, we ought to come alongside them and encourage them to press on in the strength that God provides and to experience the help that a church family, when it's healthy, provides. So if we want to see people love God more, grow in Christ's likeness, serve Christ's church, and go and make disciples elsewhere, the leaders in this church need to be encouragers. Because encouragement is what throws fuel on the fire of faith and perseverance. Now, what if you're not in Christian leadership? What does this text say to you? Well, this text specifically addresses Christian leadership. But the Bible doesn't limit encouragement to leaders alone. No, in fact, one of the things that encourages even leaders to lead in this way is to encourage them. Uh, Leaders aren't immune to the various forms of discouragement that plague people. Far from it. So my encouragement for you is to encourage people like me, leaders in the church. Start by asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will regarding encouragement. Understand what the Bible says about it. Pray that encouragement will become a key characteristic even of your life. Isn't it great when you meet someone and you go away and you're just like, that was so encouraging. You know, let's do that for one another. Speak words of encouragement to one another. Tell others what evidences of grace you see in your life and what God is doing. And follow the example of the Apostle Paul. A model of encouragement. A non-stop encourager. But that's not all he's doing. Here's what else we can do. We can be like-minded with the Apostle Paul and be concerned for multiplying the number of encouragers. You see verses 4 to 6, we've got this list of seven men accompanying Paul. Luke not only tells us who they are, but he tells us where they're from. I wonder if you recognize any of the names. I wonder if you recognize the names of any of the places. Well, again, from what we read elsewhere in the New Testament, these guys were well, representatives of churches who are sending a gift to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 18, 22, at the start of this new section in the book of Acts, this third missionary journey, we see that Paul's intent is to visit Jerusalem once more. And they're having a seriously hard time. So he's gathering up a collection to take to support those who are really struggling, who are being alienated by their society and struggling to live. So these guys are representatives of some of the churches who are sending a gift to Jerusalem. But they're also trainees who will go on to plant or pastor churches. They've already been sent to work with Paul to learn from Paul even before he decided to take up the offering. These guys are ministry apprentices. And they are reminders of the places that the gospel has already reached and examples of the people that the gospel has not only changed but called. Let's take Timothy for an example. Uh, Paul took Timothy under his wing and the recommendation of the church in Acts chapter 16 and verses 1 to 3. And Paul took this young man called Timothy and trained him up in gospel ministry. In 2 Timothy 3.10, we read that Paul would say, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance. In other words, I have taught you all that you need to know and I've taught you how you ought to live. And then Paul actually sent him 
later to be the pastor of this church in Ephesus that we've been thinking about together over the last few weeks. And not only to be a model of encouragement there, but to keep on multiplying the number of encouragers there. You see, Paul in 2 Timothy uh, 2 verses 1 and 2 would say, would say to Timothy, look, I want you, even in your weakness and your timidness, I want you to be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Here's the source for every bit of encouragement, every bit of discipleship that we ever have to do. It's the strength that Christ provides for us by his grace. And then Paul says to him, the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others also. And in only a few words, Paul has just shown us that the gospel is passed on even through four generations worth of leaders. He said, the gospel is passed from Jesus to me, and then from me to you, Timothy, and then from you, Timothy, it's to go to faithful men, and then from those faithful men that you entrust it to, they'll pass it on to others. The same ministry of meeting people, talking about Jesus, strengthening them like the book of Romans does with an understanding of the gospel and how it impacts and transforms their lives. To give them an understanding of teaching like we find in 2 Corinthians that even despite our weakness, God demonstrates his power through that and says to us, even in the hardships, that his grace is sufficient for us. Teach them these things, all of these things, and just watch what God does. Watch it grow. That's what we are to do. Paul takes people like this. This is what we see in these list of seven men. To train them up in these very ways. Multiplying himself and his ministry in order to reach as many people as he can. And we too, of course, in application of this, must take up Paul's baton and train leaders. I'm so encouraged that we as a church keep ministry training on the agenda. I'm glad that we have encouraged our apprentices and pastors in training over a number of years. My encouragement for all of us is to keep going with multiplying gospel workers. And it's reasonable to do so. I mean, one of the reasons why I'm desperate myself to be involved in training up and sending out more pastors and other gospel workers is that I'm ambitious to reach as many people as I possibly can across this globe, even in my own lifetime, even beyond. Can you imagine that? Now, I cannot do that, and the person that I am, in the here and now, etc., I'm limited to time and space, but if I and we can train up more pastors, more Martins, more Rosses, more of the kind of gospel worker that God employs in his service to take this gospel to the ends of the earth, then we can have a reach that is even beyond our imagination as a church. Do we understand that? That's why multiplying ministry is so vital, even in a time like this. Even if you concentrate our concern, not from the nations, but to Scotland itself. Scotland needs more pastors, planters, gospel workers of all sorts. People who will risk everything to give their life to this. People who, after becoming Christians and understanding the gospel, like these guys in Acts 20, grasp the weightiness and the significance of this. I remember from my own conversion, converted at 19 at university, thinking, I've not had this for 19 years of my life. I've not even finished my degree. I'm not even sure if I will. I just know that if there's anything that I have to do with my life, it's telling as many people as possible that Christ died for their sins and rose again. 
that they might have forgiveness for sin. So that we can say to people who are discouraged in all sorts of the futility of life and the futility of their thinking, I can say, you're loved. You're loved by Almighty God who would have been just in pouring out his wrath and his condemnation on you. And you know your love because he poured it out on his son instead of you, if you believe in him. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, maybe you're sitting beside the person who brought you and think, that's what they keep telling me. They keep telling me all about this Jesus, about he died and for Their commitment and even their persistence in telling you about this, don't misunderstand it. It is a mark of love for you. They love you. You should listen to them. So encouragement is vital to us all. Vital and necessary trait for Christian leaders. Coming alongside people, commending Christ to them. Encouraging people involves calling for faith and perseverance. And multiplying the number of encouragers that can do that. It's all important. But how? How? How do we exactly do that? Well, I think this passage shows us in point two. We teach. We encourage with the word of God. It's the necessary means of giving encouragement. We teach what God's word says. Look with me down at verses 7 to 12. What you've got in this little section in Acts is... Is Acts 20 is this, oh, it's a Sunday evening service at Troas Baptist Church. The church has gathered and they've eaten together. They remembered the gospel and to hear the word of God taught. Verse 7 tells us we came together to break bread. It's a big meal. No doubt they did add, probably added on the Lord's Supper. And Paul spoke to the people because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. So the likelihood is these guys have finished work. They've come in about six or seven as a sun's setting and they've committed basically to hearing a sermon preach until midnight. Oh, what a thought. Oh, what a thought. Now the means by which the apostle Paul sought to encourage, build up, fortify this little church family in Troas, which he's revisiting, he's revisiting these guys because he had just gone out, spent three months in Greece and come back. When he first went out, 2 Corinthians tells us that the Lord had opened a door for him there that was unexpected. People came to faith, amazingly. And he's coming back to encourage these three-month-old believers, these little infants in the faith. And the means by which he goes and encourages and fortifies this little church family in Troas was to teach them the truth about God. The Greek word for spoke in verse 7 and talked in verse 9 suggests dialogue. So he's probably presenting some truth. He's maybe, I've just been thinking about this letter that I've just written to some Romans. Let me tell you a little bit about what, I've, what I wrote to them. You know, he's, he's reflecting on these things and then there's no doubt time for Q&A. Question and answer. In verse 11, it also says um, that the Greek word that's used there is the word homily, basically, which suggests more of a monologue, more of a sermon. In any case, what Paul is doing, as we know from his practice throughout the book of Acts, is he's opening up the scriptures. That was his custom. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the empty tomb. That was his custom. He's talking about repentance and faith. He's talking about telling the world that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. Paul taught the glories of God's words. 
And then verse 2 tells us after encouraging that God's, well basically, he, it, this tells us that God's word is the means of encouraging others. The best means of encouraging others. Because God's word, clearly taught and properly applied, is the means used by us and by Christian leaders to encourage a church family. Now, some people ask the question, is it trustworthy? Is it reliable? How do we know if it is or not? Well, actually, I think the text helps us. Because what God has done for us at various points in history is attest to the reliability of the word spoken by accompanying the speaking of that word with something miraculous. Something that really makes you sit up and take notice. And so look what happened next. Paul's preaching about five or six hours. And the room's stuffy. Verses 8 and 9. The room's hot because of the lamps. Probably stuffy with oily smoke. Not an awful lot of oxygen in there. And there's a nodder. Eutychus. He's probably moved over to the window to get some fresh air. You would have thought. Well, here's Eutychus. Sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. I love that. Luke is so honest. He did, he did. He went on and on. Okay. Now, ironically, Eutychus means lucky one. <laughs> but he's not so lucky, is he? He falls out of a third-story window. Uh, having fallen into, uh, into a deep sleep, falls out the window, into the street, and dies. Wow. Now, Paul goes down and brings Eutychus back to life. And declares, he's alive. Now, it's not that he wasn't dead. It's not that, oh, don't worry, we just got it wrong. He's breathing. No, it's not. He's alive. It's that Paul's actions have brought him back to life. And Paul is very deliberate about what he does. This is a bit weird, isn't it? I mean, imagine someone fell out the window here, right? You're weak. Yes, just checking. Uh, Imagine someone fell out the window here, and I went down, and I looked at him, and, and I took a pulse. I can do that. And, and this person was dead, right? Now imagine I just lay down and stretched myself out on them and then give them a hug. You would think that would be pretty weird, wouldn't you? That's what the Apostle Paul did with Eutychus. And then he got up and said, he's alive, it's all right. Well, why did he do that? Well, if he, he, he's, he's been very careful with his actions. He's copying what a man called Elijah did, and Elisha in the Old Testament, when they too, one of five men in the Bible who raised a dead man to life. He's very deliberately, by his actions, associating himself with the, men, the life-giving messengers of God in the past. Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, Peter, and now Paul. He is affirming that he is a life-giving messenger sent by God by raising Eutychus from the dead. Now what does Paul do next after declaring that he's alive? He doesn't say, okay, I'm sorry, I think you've all had enough. I preached for about five hours or so, it's time to go home. When people start dying, that's a sign the sermon's dragged on a wee bit. No, he doesn't say that. By the way, I know that you young adults have been here all day. yes. How providential that we're looking at Eutychus tonight. Stay awake now. Now, no, he doesn't even say health and safety have been on the phone. Um, we, need, we can't keep meeting until we've done something about this window. No, it doesn't say that. 
Verse 11. Then he, went, he, Paul, went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until, what's the next word? Yes, say it. Daylight. That's a 12-hour sermon. Oh, yeah, well, you might think twice about complaining about these 40-minute sermons now, won't you? I hope. Well, this, what does this tell us? This text tells us that Paul intended to make the most of every moment that he had with his church in Troas. He was so eager to eat with them and encourage them. He knew that they, like us, were prone to discouragement. Maybe even so early on in their faith, maybe from disappointment or the, the weight of guilt and shame within. Or the influence of the outsiders coming with other plausible philosophies and arguments saying, what are you doing following this Jesus? That is a nonsense. And they're discouraged by this. Maybe their family have alienated themselves, ostracized themselves from them. And they're discouraged because of that. Or maybe because of they've put their faith and trust in Jesus even within this first three months, they're not allowed to trade in the marketplace. They're destitute. They don't know how they're going to get the next meal on the table. Paul is encouraging them from the word of God as much as he possibly could. Clearly taught and properly applied. That's why Paul spent so long teaching. The church spent so long listening. And Paul, actually, I reckon, would have gone on all night if it wasn't for the interruption of Eutychus' fall. For the priority of Christian leaders and the key means of readying believers to fight off this multi-angle assault of discouragement is to encourage people with the word of God. What was the result in Troas? Look with me. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Do you know what the Greek word is for comforted? Parakaleo. Encouraged. Encouraged. That encouragement was no doubt inspired by the miracle they witnessed, but the way it's written suggests it was a bonus. The miracle was a bonus. The real encouragement came from hearing the word of God concerning the gospel of God. Now, how does this apply? Well, you might say it's easy. Pastors shouldn't preach for so long. People die when that happens. I would say members shouldn't fall asleep during sermons. That's what uh, people die when they do that. But the main application in this section is to place a high value on the teaching of the word of God as this primary source of Christian encouragement. A primary means of encouraging one another. And the Bible teaches that three, there are three main sources, three reasons why we do that. Romans 15 verse 4 tells us that as we look to the Bible, the things that have been written in the past, it says everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that, here's the purpose, through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So we're encouraged by it because we learn lessons from the Bible. We learn lessons from the people of the past. We don't just do that as individuals. We should do that as a church. That's why Hebrews 10 focuses on on this. It says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So we encourage each other with the word of God. And what does the word of God point to? Jesus. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, 
if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then, Paul says to the Philippians, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. That's how we encourage one another. We are prone to discouragement. I am. My encouragement folder in my inbox is fairly empty. I don't think we're very good at encouraging each other. Let us do it more and more and more. It's a necessary trait for Christian leaders. It's a necessary trait for us all. But let's take up the word of God and encourage one another from it together as we commend Christ to one another. And who knows what the Lord our God will do. Let's bow our heads and let's pray.